HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to HRN on Tour. My name is Kat Johnson, and this is our very first interview we're recording from Charleston. We just got in today, and in a few days, we're going to be doing full afternoons of interviews with folks that are here for the festival. But to kick things off, I had to get two guys together who have been gracious with their time in talking to us about um, some very important foods of the Low Country. Um, both historically and how they're going to impact, I think, the future of foodways in this area. Um, so first up, we have Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills. Welcome, Glenn. Hello. And we have Brian Ward of Clemson University's Coastal Research and Education Center. Welcome, Brian. Hello. How are you doing? And I'm also joined by one of HRN's amazing hosts, Harry Rosenblum of Feast Your Ears. Thanks for joining us, Harry. Glad to be here. It's wet in Charleston. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, usually we land and it's like sunshiny and beautiful and it's like kind of a reprieve for the New Yorkers among us, but it was rainy today. So there's nowhere to go but up from here. It's going to be nice this weekend, I think. We brought this weather directly from Brooklyn just for you. <laughs> <laughs> One second. Um, okay, so let's kick things off by, Brian, I want to hear a little bit more about your background specifically, and you work with Clemson University, which for those who know is actually upstate um, in South Carolina, but you're based here in Charleston. So talk a bit about how you work with the university and um, why exactly you work here in the Lowcountry. Okay, well, uh, first and foremost, I actually grew up here in the Lowcountry, and um, so uh, but Clemson um, University is located in Clemson, South Carolina, so in the upstate. And uh, we have um, research stations located throughout the state that focus on different, different things. Um, and our station primarily focuses on um, vegetable crops. However, um, we have an organic uh, portion to our farm. And in organics, you have to basically think holistically. And so we have to rotate in grains, legumes, rice, other things to that effect to make it holistic. And so that places me in a position after being here for 25 years. Now I'm an assistant professor and that gives me the ability to actually work with rice um, as well as all my other crops that I've been working with with Glenn and Anson Mills for the past 15 years or so. So Glenn, we've, we've talked to you several times on the network and so we know a bit about the backstory of Anson Mills, but give us 
kind of the the one minute elevator pitch of how you got started working with rice and how that led to you building Anson Mills. Well, my mom is Geechee, uh, which means rice everywhere. And today it's called the Gullah Geechee Corridor, uh, but it all has to do with the Sea Islands. And my mother was raised in Aiken, South Carolina, and on Edisto Island and in Savannah. So that's kind of like the holy trilogy. Everything in that triangle uh, is rice. I mean, everything. It's all based on rice. All the culture from beginning to end, first settlement on. Having said that, um, I grew up with rice. Uh, our, I was the chef for our pets. My mother did not let me cook for the family. Uh, although I have a massive hospitality career behind me, 35 years in the hotel and restaurant business designing things and working with the best chefs in this country. Uh, I just got to the point where I wanted to grow rice instead of just experience rice at the table. I have no idea why still, but uh, one of the first people I ran across in that endeavor was Merle Shepard who introduced me to Brian. Uh, Merle Shepard, Dr. Merle Shepard was at that time director and professor emeritus at Clemson University and director of Clemson Coastal Research and Education Center here in Charleston. And he was a rice guy. They were growing rice and Brian was growing it with him. I didn't know Brian, but they had rice here and this is the rice kingdom. It's 480 some miles long and it's all rice, but you can't see any rice when you drive down that road that goes 480 miles. So that's where it started. And today, uh, Brian's been phenomenal in pivot points for research for the National Rice Research Center, uh, for the National uh, Rice uh, Institute in the Philippines. We're all kind of in the orbit. I'm the only tractor donkey of the crew. Everybody else is a scientist. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Brian's making a face when you said that. <laughs> I think that's maybe not the right descriptor. Yeah, I do. Well, I, I, donkey, I, I yeah. like that, though. I, I'm I, thinking I, of titling my book that. My agent's threatening to kill me. But, yeah. I do my fair amount of donkey uh, tractor driving as well. <laughs> it's an important yeah, Brian's, role. Brian's the real deal. He actually does it. Yeah, yeah. That's true. He's an horticulturist. So how far back does the Coastal Research and Education Center go? How long has it been here? And kind of how has the work evolved over those years? Well, the land itself was actually a plantation dating back to the 1700s. Um, but it actually came into Clemson's possession um, around 19, in the 1930s. And the facility, uh, the lab itself, was built in 1932. And then the USDA joined uh, up with Clemson and then they built their research facility in 1936 and then in 2003 we built a massive uh, brand new facility across the street on the USDA property so and we've been growing rice now for since 1988 I think it is wow um, what was kind of the impetus of bringing rice into the center that's uh, that was Merle, Merle Shepard. Um, he was the director of the International Rice Institute in the Philippines for two years. And then when he came back, um, he um, got a job with Clemson and um, he basically wanted to continue his work uh, from the Philippines. And that's that's where it started. Mm. Um, so then talk a bit more about how the two of you first started to work together and what that looked like. Well, uh, I mean, essentially, uh, it was a, a really good pro bono type of work. Um, I mean, I needed I needed grain um, and I needed rice for my rotations, and growers needed seed, 
And so uh, Glenn, um, through the, the, the uh, Carolina Gold Rice Foundation um, and Anson Mills, uh, would provide uh, small amounts of seed for me. I would use those in my rotations. I would uh, increase the seed. And then that seed would go to growers outside of South Carolina, and then they would actually grow a crop, and it basically makes a full circle, you know. So that's that's essentially how it, how our relationship began, and then and then I started to get into heavy, and then I got, I landed a a federal grant um, working with rice, and so that's basically that took it to the next step. So let's talk about what's happening now, um, whether is obviously a big factor when it comes to when and what you're planting climate change is here and obviously rice is something that grows in the low country how is that affecting the way you're growing rice in this region well i'll kick it off um the the idea i had and this is a long program and we're hoping you can come back because it's going to be so cool this fall we're bringing three scientists in besides Brian, and Brian and the three scientists are going to pr present on what we're about to cover. It'll be sometime in November. We still don't have the date yet, but it'll be at Wormslow Plantation in Savannah with Sarah Ross and crew, Mashama Bailey, BJ Dennis, a whole bunch of chefs are coming to this thing, and it's going to be an exploration of the coastal agronomy in situ, because that's what Wormslow's so much uh, into. Uh, Sarah's phenomenal on that. She's Can on the Can you talk board. a little bit more about what Wormslow is really Oh, quick? Wormslow Plantation, I'm sorry, is just outside of Savannah. Uh, it's actually in Savannah. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of the oldest uh, rice locations on the East Coast because the slaves that were brought there by the British at first settlement had rice, and they've done extensive seed archaeology on a very high peer review level uh, looking at the remnants of those uh, gardens of rice there uh, and so that that kicked off Sarah's interest and <laughs> being Sarah being Sarah 432 cultivars later of uh, Sea Island associated rare plants which she gives the seed away for free we all do by the way including Brian uh, we don't monetize seed in any of this and it's in public domain so it's astounding what they have accomplished there in the last half decade and they're now doing a rice program, so we're going to celebrate that. And in celebrating that, we're looking at all facets of rice. And the scientists that are coming in are working with Brian to work on resilient uh, systems for rice horticulture. And so the whole focus of this thing next fall is going to be, what's the cutting edge worldwide? These are the cutting edge scientists. Believe it or not, one of them was only six months ago at the University of Colorado. There's so much rice in Colorado. Have you noticed? <laughs> Couldn't find any. Well, that's like a misconception, I think, is where rice can be grown Yeah, it in can general. be grown anywhere. Yeah. Right? And it is. Uh, and that's what this is about. Mm -hmm. So um, the, my, my short introduction is I didn't know, because I'm not a scientist, that Brian was already drafting into this program and getting all the starter cultivars for resilient rice systems here as trial plots, if I understand it correct. Right, doctor? That's correct. Okay, go for it. Well, essentially, um, there's uh, one of the one of the major problems um, along the coastline now is um, saltwater intrusion, and growers have had to deal with uh, with salt, you know, since the dawn of time when they grew rice here. And I'm going to interrupt since yes. I'm one. Yes, three times in five years. 
I've got a field that has the most persistent aquatic weed in the world that blew in from Africa in a hurricane while the whole bloody field salted. So this is right on point. I'm two years in trying to recover it right now. Go ahead. So essentially, um, it's a no-brainer idea. Um, so what we're, we're, we're what happens is they they growers have been dealing with this since the dawn of time um, in the brackish waters. But how they how they how they deal with it is basically when the salt when the, the tide comes in, uh, the salt in the in the in the in the water table itself actually will begin to sink. Okay, at dead high tide, there's about a 20 40 minute lull. So at that point in time, they'll actually bring water in off the top, okay, where it's fresh water, okay, and so that's how they avoid salting the fields out, okay. However, with um, with uh, by us tapping um, wells and aquifers, and basically some in, in these hurricanes, hurricane events, and other climate, climatological events, uh, we're starting to get an increase in the salt. Is actually the salt water, uh, fresh water dividing line is actually starting to be pushed. So where we've had, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of, of rice fields, um, some of those we can't grow rice any, anymore because of the fact that they're salted out. So um, some scientists in um, both uh, here in the United States and, and abroad uh, have found some wild types that have actually had these things called uh, QTLs. Um, uh, basically, there are sections on the chromosome that identify for salt tolerance. And so, so they've identified uh, quite a few salt-tolerant varieties now. And so ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to actually, we've, we've submitted a grant, okay, uh, to the federal government um, for an organic tra transitions grant. And uh, that grant basically is trying to, it works for organic transition and organic growers, but it also uh, attacks, you know, uh, the whole climate thing. If there's a bunch, a bunch of facets in it. And so it was a no-brainer. So what we're going to try to do is see if we can get these rice uh, varieties to grow here and see which varieties actually are really, you know, robust. And then um, at some point in time, um, hopefully maybe try to back cross them into some existing um, uh, old land race lines like Carolina Gold. And so we'll have salt tolerant Carolina Gold rice and some of our other like Jefferson's Carlet and some of our other unique uh, heirloom type land race lines. And then then we'll have uh, a more robust uh, uh, rice production in, in, in the low country of South Carolina. And also also there's another another unique thing is that we're actually trying to work with growers to uh, grow these lines, okay, on this uh, salt um, infringed uh, properties, and then cut maybe 70%, and then leave 30% for the early migrating birds and waterfowl, and then and then the return crop that comes back from the 70% that was cut will be for the later later migrating birds. So it's, it benefits growers, it benefits the wildlife, uh, and it benefits basically the economy as a whole. So it's a win-win-win situation. I'm so interested that you bring up the migratory birds because my dad works on a wildlife refuge in Alabama, and they're starting to see a drop in the birds that are coming that are passing through, mm. and they used to work with cooperative farmers to plant corn, flood that. That was what the birds wanted to eat. Are you seeing a similar thing happening around here? And is that something that you have been working 
Is that a project of yours that you work on on a consistent basis? Uh, it's not a it's not a consistent thing. Yeah. But, but one of the reasons why I wanted to work where I work now uh, in in on in agriculture is because of of waterfowl. Mm. Okay, and so that got me into the whole uh, the whole research. Okay, so well, I went to, I went to Auburn as my undergrad. War Eagle, okay? War Eagle, <laughs> and um, and uh, so. Um, but I wanted to save the, save the world. Yeah. And so, and then I real I didn't realize until actually I had a job, you know, as a, as a summer grunt, you know, digging, digging water furrows and ditches, um, making no money at all. Uh, how much, how much the research that we do out there actually is for the benefit of, of the environment. Um, it's, 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 it's everything we do out there is for the reduction of petrochemical use, um, and precision ag. And so, so it, it basically, all of it basically was caused by my interest in wildlife and waterfowl and migratory birds. And I have seen a dramatic drop in the migratory birds along the coast uh, here in South Carolina. Dramatic. And you, you can ask any waterfowl person in the state and they'll tell you the same thing. So in, in planting the rice the way that you're envisioning it, do you anticipate that that will hopefully bring back some of these migratory birds? Actually, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty positive it will. Yeah. And so one of the things is birds, um, migratory birds are easily imprinted. Mm -hmm. And so when they imprint no food, okay, the, their, their offspring and so on and so forth will not want to come in that flyway. But when you offer food, okay, then it becomes imprinted upon them and then the numbers will increase over time. Well, I didn't expect to talk about migratory birds. I know. That's awesome, though. It's all interlinked. It's a, it it's is. A, it is. Right. It is. It's, a, it's a big circle. Yeah. You know, it's a big circle. We haven't said it yet, but uh, it's called global sea level rise. And it's also talking about the fact, uh, when you think about coastal ag, that up until three years ago, and my favorite rice scientist in the whole world is that Dr. Anna McClung at the National Rice Research Center who told me now seven years ago that I was crazy, I should have been moving north then. I didn't do it. So it's been a mad dash. We're 750 miles north of our southernmost fields now. We didn't stop farming in the areas because we don't want to extract and not give people income. Mm -hmm. But we moved up into Missouri, and Carolina Gold wouldn't have matured in Missouri even 60 months ago. Wow. You know, and it's best crop we've ever had the last two years and we're going for a third and moving north in Missouri now too. As you're moving and trying to find newer places to grow rice, what is that process like? How are you finding more land? Well, we don't. We, we actually go beg farmers who are in situ. And in the case of Missouri, there was no one growing Carolina gold. And so that's like going to Egypt and you don't speak the local language. Literally, I'm not kidding. Wonderful, smart, you know, half the rice in America is grown in that region, right? So it's not like they don't know what they're doing. So it's a boon in one way because as soon as they understood what we were talking about, they were all over it. And horticulture is right on the pin over there. That doesn't help South Carolina except for biosecurity. And so we have seed and production uh, there and it's moving forward. So coming back to the, the challenge, you the breadbasket of rice, I mean, Anna McClung was in the New York Times in May being quoted by Kim Severson, said, you know, half the rice in America is not sustainable. And I didn't know Brian was working on this. This is really, really cool. This point, 
point work. They talk about it all over the world, but it, the places where it's actually being done, relatively small right now, but it's going to accelerate massively. They moved a rice scientist to the University of Massachusetts at Boston in order to deal with this. It's a consortium of MIT, Yale, UMass Boston, and uh, that uh, Dr. Brooke Moyer, who's a genius, and she's quite young. You see, it's a lot of women in this. It's a good thing, right? Uh, the other is Sayopala, who's a horticulturist and a researcher from Texas A&M in rice studies, who's up there in the cranberry bogs, knocking around looking at converting all the cranberry bogs to rice security for biosecurity for feeding people rice. My friends in the business are already staggering around looking for seed. This comes back to the thing, it's not just rice production, it's not just waterfowl. What about our biosecurity? This becomes a national uh, challenge, and it is. And Brian's taking it that way, and this is in consortium with Anna McClung and the team at NRRC, correct? That's correct. Go for it. That's, that's um, really cool essentially program. so yeah so I contacted Anna McClung and I um, mentioned and actually I, I, I mean I'd be you know remorse to say that my team up on Clemson I have uh, some team members up on Clemson that actually um, we came up with the idea you know about salt tolerance and, and rice and uh, SRI which is system of rice intensification so we're gonna actually be util utilizing modified version of that where you basically spread the plants out but um so um after i spoke with them we had a, a, a conference a meeting and um and then i went to anna mcclung and I asked anna mcclung so what do you tell me about uh, salt tolerant rice and she sent me a paper and um and uh, forwarded the information to one of her colleagues there at dale bumpers um in arkansas and um they provided they listed 11 different varieties here in the states that have already been identified out of i think um close to 300 lines that were um that were looked at and actually one does actually have a carolina in its name um but i can't remember the exact name of it right now right offhand but um it, essentially um i mean this is a, a, a hopefully the grant gets funded even if the grant doesn't get funded we'll um we'll work we'll work around that to try to find funding you know to 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 keep this this effort up and if 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 um if, if, if we'll just reapply next year if it doesn't get funded this year, you know, and so, and we'll have, we'll generate some baseline data this year regardless um, and do some seed increase. That's what's really cool about Brian. He's doing do it. it. He's going to do it. Yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the model, the whole model with growers working on land that's, you know, marginal at best. Um, being able to make money, you know, being able to produce a product for, for local chefs um, and then benefiting the, the, the habitat. I mean, it's just a win, win, win. And so you, I mean, it's the model, the model is foundational. And once you have a foundational model that, 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 that's already been proven, actually, it's already been proven on federal lands. And we're, we're trying to work with the uh, state lands now um, too, because they have, they have a lot, they have a lot of uh, impoundments that. Um, What's it, do you remember the acreage figures? It's staggering. Well, I mean, so so I spoke with um, um, Dr. Hayden Smith at the College of Charleston. He's a um, historian, and um, it it the numbers range uh, once um, as high as five hundred thousand acres um, of flooded flooded land in South Carolina. Well, from from essentially Wilmington to Savannah, and so but in at any given time, I think the max in production at one time was around two hundred ten two hundred twenty thousand acres. 
um, and then it declined sharply, you know, around 1900, you know. So, and so the the potential um, for us to make something great again is there. And so, and and although you know, hurricanes are probably the, one of the biggest issues. And just like Carolina Gold, we we uh, working with you know the, the scientists and 13 mothers as far as the the lines that were bred to make Charleston Gold. Okay, we now have something that's uh, that can withstand hurricanes. Okay, because it's shorter, it's more it's more robust. And so that's the same similar type of thing. You basically you look at one thing first, cultural practices, um, and then you try to use some breeding, and then we'll hopefully get some of these genetics, you know, classic classical breeding um, into some of these older lines. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll have a, a, a we'll prove our model, you know, on paper, you know, in peer-reviewed journals, and then and then move forward from that, and then start breeding. Okay, and so then we, we can have our traditional flavors come through. You know, that basically is the reason, for the most part, why why you're here today. You know, in Charleston. I mean, that's it's because of Carolina Gold Rice deliciousness. Yes. So, and there's there's a it all in, in a way you hear about global sea level rise, catastrophe, collapse of this, that, biosecurity, and it tends to be kind of. Uh, oh my God, hair's on fire running out the door kind of thing. Uh, but it helps to know your history where my buddy David Shields, Dr. David Shields, who's chairman of our foundation, comes in, who did a project with me uh, for Orton Plantation up in North Carolina. It's uh, 12,500 acres all day with a 7.8-mile watershed behind it, fresh water, and it's terraced coming back down around into the Wilmington River. And their biosecure routines there were well documented. It's the Moore family owns it, and it dates back to 1720-something, I believe, 1726. Uh, McDonald clan, just if anyone's out there thinking about that. Way over my pay grade. I don't know what my lineage is. I'm afraid to find out. And think it might have something to do with you another taken planet. The DNA test yet? <laughs> no, <laughs> but anyhow, uh, David uh, plumbed the records and some things we know for a fact that are easy to understand that you could tell school children, which I love because that's my level. Is guess where your collards came from? Your collards came from Europe because we needed to desalt our rice fields. How many people know that? And why don't we teach that in school? Colworts came here because they're salt tolerant. They'll trap salt, then you graze them off, and the salt goes into animals and or people, and everybody's happy. It could be people or animals grazing. Uh, Benny is salt tolerant. That's African sesame. And if you start looking at the Carolina Rice Kitchen and you look at the core plants that are in there, both from Africa and from Europe and from the Far East, they're all salt tolerant, drought tolerant, blah, 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 all climate change specialists. And the definition of rice pea, which is the unguiculatas or cow peas or field peas, whatever you want to call it, they're all beans. But that class particularly that fits this agronomic that Brian studies, and he did this for me, thank you. He put petite rouge, Huguenot peas in for a salt and flood tolerance, and we all thought they weren't going to be flood tolerant. He was growing them underwater. And then, so we put, he saw them dying, so he pulled the water off, went back and flooded them again like three or four days later. And at the 10-day point, 
they could just mature out underwater. Flood tolerant. So global sea level rise, not only are they salt tolerant, they're flood tolerant and they're drought tolerant. If you have those three, you're talking about Sea Island and Coastal Carolina Rice Kingdom plants. And in order to make that fun, you look at the core foods of the Carolina Rice Kitchen, and what is it? Reezy Peasy, which is rice peas and gravy over rice with collards. That is the system. If you put some barley biscuits with it, the oldest barley was introduced here, because it's salt tolerant, drought tolerant, water tolerant, bear barley. Bear is the determinant of beer. It's, it's, it's astounding. So we get beer, whiskey, and everything else. We became a whiskey capital here, and uh, because of grapes, and a brandy capital. Yummy. So it's not always about trying to necessarily breed a new plant or breed something new, but it's about re-educating people on what can actually grow. Horticulturally, yeah. That we already have. Yes. It's already there. And taking the traits from those, the, the genetic building blocks of taking the traits from those land race, broad land races, bringing them in to current production, which like row seven from yeah. um, Dan Barber's and... Charlotte Douglas, my favorite smart person in the whole world, their effort. Uh, Kate Barney, a good Southern girl in that Yankee team, excuse me. Um, you know, that's, that's uh, allied with their efforts too. How do you take the best of the genetics, don't mess them up, like Brian's been working with for decades, and take them into something that works in the modern world? So what does the future of this look like? So you said that, uh, you know, historically we're talking about 200,000 acres that were cultivation that had a sort of heavy decline how many of those acres are under cultivation now and then let's say we sit down again in 10 years what are we looking at numbers wise we did a survey uh, from you have to go from florida so you're essentially cooper island uh fernandina beach is kind of the same uh, area so if you're familiar with the coastal geographies of georgia carolina north carolina uh, so if you take that span of miles in, um, the acreages are well over 2,000 now. But it's all spread out. There's, there's no grand rice plantation. The largest rice plantation in the history of American agriculture is Delta. And the two fields down there uh, are bifurcated by what used to be the carriage path. And um, it looks like Africa. I mean, it's 1,600-acre fields apiece, and they have much more land than that, too. But that was just decorative. Mm. Two 1,600-acre fields, decorative, so that they could just witness rice growing. Of course, they had a ton of slaves doing it. There's a horrific side, too. Um, but the culture is astounding when you look at it on a biosecure basis and look at it as resilience and look at it as a farming system that worked then. And we keep thinking, well, we've learned so much since then. And then you reach back and you see those genetics at work and you go, oh, wait a second. They already did that. Let's grab that history and bring it forward. And that's what's going on now. There's, a, there's not as much uh, crisping as one might think in this. I went to a play, uh, Yale conference and I, I expected to hear about the cutting edge of crisping new plants for Are you resilience. talking about like CRISPR? Like yeah. The, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. There's, uh, there's not so much of that. There's a lot of, let's dig into the land races and pull them up fast. 
and use those characteristics we can prove we've got the histories of them out there we're not experimenting anymore we're actually looking at trials that have a history sure so that that's a it's a good thing right so 2,000 acres is probably good and nationally Anna said it's a lot more than that there's a lot of Carolina gold our our Carolina gold which belongs to the rice kingdom it's all over the place now it's even in California I mean, it it seems like we've come to a point where we're looking backwards at the reasons these plants were grown here originally, and we went through such a crazy industrialization in the 18th and 19th century that allowed for large, big ag, right? And now we're coming to a point where we actually need the the old technology. Yeah, Brian is my tutor on this. He's the one that taught me about phenotypic plasticity. He told me there'd be a test later, too. Phenotypic plasticity means that there's enough genetic depth in whatever plant you're dealing with. If you move it, it adapts. That's phenotypic plasticity. I always thought it was just, I'll move it, it'll adapt. (laughs) It's like plastic. So it's like, 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 like. Actually, the title of um, of the grant, actually, in the title of the grant, is um, uh, reintroduction of rices in pre Green Revolution uh, environments through uh, the use of salt tolerance and a uh, system of modified rice intensification. So it's something to that effect. I'm not sure exactly right offhand, but hopefully hopefully we'll uh, we'll move forward. One way or the other, we're going to move forward. When will you find out about the grant? Uh, I think we'll probably find out sometime in July, okay. August. So it won't be – but we're, although we're going to acquire the lines from the um, germplasm, you know, facility in uh, Arkansas. And so we'll acquire the lines this year and do a seed increase this year with them and just just basically just do a complete like phenotypic um expression how they grow just all the all the different variables you know looking at you know days to maturity days to flowering days to pre-boot days to boot uh tiller counts uh disease occurrence um all these different things there's a lot more that's in the grant that we're going to do but uh we'll do that baseline data this year so when we go in next year we won't be going in blind we'll already know what the plants are going to be doing you know so we'll have a good idea you know and a lot of research is like that where you, you you'll do baseline data you know collection prior to the actually actually doing the full full-fledged uh, work you know and so that way you make you make the uh, the research more ergonomic you know, mm. down the road and what we've done at the foundation in the past is we don't wait for grant monies. Uh, sometimes we jump in and we'll run a parallel uh, that gives the scientist absolutely no obligations for results and or otherwise just turn them loose. That because the entire board of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation comes from that scientific ethos. You know, these are uh, our advisors, uh, Gerda F. Kirsch, through World Food Prizes one of the best rice mines in the history of the world, period. Uh, and I can call him and ask him a question. It's just amazing. And he'll answer the phone. Glenn, right? I think there's a lot of people that will answer the phone when you call. Uh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> ah, not him. <laughs> um, well, to keep us posted about the grant, because I really want to know how all this continues onward. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you both so much for sitting down with Harry and me and t- talking to us about rice and the things you're working on. It's really nice to be down in Charleston once a year to catch up on the work you're doing. Cool. And sometimes we see Glenn other places too. 
Yeah. Like we almost were on the same plane today. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you in Charlotte for the bread symposium. Yeah. Oh, cool. Probably. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be there. Yeah. We'll have to come back to Charleston more often. That's, that's right. I don't, I don't get out too often. You <laughs> we'll know. have to come to the research center. Yeah, absolutely. That would be actually fantastic. Actually, if y'all can make a special trip. Yes. Uh, maybe this this uh, this summer, you know, Great. say say late July, August, you know, we should be in flower hopefully by then, Ooh. you know. And, uh, we could come down and see it growing right after the Brett Symposium. That'd, that'd, be, that'd, that'd, that'd be awesome. That would work. That's you perfect. Know? And we could actually, I could actually have a small field day. Yeah. And bring some growers um, from the from the local sea islands. And, and I could get some of those rices, maybe enough for Harry P. Muller at the Bread Symposium to make some rice bread. We'll have to pitch a Are workshop. Are you ready for that? Let's do it. You ready for that? That was the number one bread during our colonial era. No one seems to remember. Oh, yeah. It was always rice bread. It and wasn't then, just wheat bread. And then I finally want to make it down to Sapelo Island. It's oh, still on cool. my list. You're going to do that? I haven't done it yet. We can all do it. Yeah. I was uh, I was just... down in Brunswick um, with Matthew Rayford and Javon Sage in yeah, December yeah. and so close and still haven't made it. So next time. Doc, Bill, and Anita, yeah, they're stay, ready. Have to stay in the birdhouses. That's what I want to ah. do. <laughs> you know, I want to see the best bulls. place on the East Coast. People don't know that. Yeah. It is. It's best beautiful. Kept secret. Absolutely beautiful. You know, fighting bulls, fighting okay. cows. Well, we have a lot of, a lot more plans now lined up, so I feel good about ending <laughs> this interview. <laughs> Thank deal. you again. Um, uh, once again, I'm Kat Johnson with Harry Rosenblum, Brian Ward, and Glenn Roberts. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Kat. Thank Thanks you very much. Listening. This program is powered by Simplecast.